This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're beginning chapter 17. Jesus had just told his disciples about his purpose on the earth, dying on the cross to redeem humanity. That idea was hard for them to grasp, and while it was still rattling around in their heads, Jesus took James, John, and Peter up to the top of a mountain for a foretaste of glory divine. They would witness exactly what Jesus had just predicted, a glorified Christ. As Jesus revealed his deity, he assured believers, then and now, that we too would share in that coming glory, but almost always after suffering. That's surely not our preference, but it should give us hope and a reason to remain faithful in spite of hardship and trials. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. This is a highly visual scene here with sights and sounds. So, And I want you to capture that as we're reading this together. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you want, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And raising their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. When they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wanted. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So I want to show you the beauty of Jesus against the backdrop of the ugliness of suffering. And the reason I say this is because Jesus promised the disciples, suffering is coming. There is a cross coming. And he continued, remember last week, and said, I'm not the only one going to the cross. You must pick up your cross and follow me. And we have determined from last week's study that the cross is not an overbearing father. It's not a loud neighbor or a yapping chihuahua. Your cross is an instrument of torture. It's shame and humiliation and suffering and pain. And Jesus says, if you are my disciples, you must be okay with enduring those things. You must, in fact, deny yourself. Place your desires at the foot of the cross and die to them. But now, what a contrast in verses 1 through 4. The beauty of Jesus against the backdrop of suffering. The magnificent picture of Christ. And here is the image of the glorified Christ who conquers death. Against whom the power of the gates of Hades has no authority. This is a preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the glorified risen Christ was going to come with resurrected saints. 
And he increases by doing that. Their confidence in the promise of future glory. There is suffering, but there is future glory after that. And I want to highlight two aspects of this vision of future glory. First of all, verses 1 through 2, what we have is Jesus in royal splendor. Royal as in kingly, because that's the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. And now he's not only a king, but he is the glorified king. The one who shines through the Shekinah of glory of God, shines through his skin, through his garments, in order to show his divinity. Now, Matthew is not writing this as an eyewitness because he was not in the transfiguration. He was one of the nine who stayed behind. So he is writing as a reporter of the accounts of the three, Peter, James, and John. And interestingly, the word that Matthew uses here to describe what happened is the Greek word for metamorphosis. And he means by that that Jesus unveiled his divinity. To show his disciples that he is the God-man. Remember, Jesus Christ is not a hybrid God-slash-man. He is a 100% God, a 100% man. And here he unveils his divinity so that his disciples can know for sure that, yes, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but this is my divinity that I am giving you the opportunity to see. And he allowed the glory of God to shine through. And that is because, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Father, the exact representation of his nature. So Peter, James, and John were looking at divinity there, and amazingly, they did not get consumed by the holiness of God, because God supernaturally preserved them. Furthermore, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1 verse 15. The great God and Savior, according to Titus 2 verse 13. The one with the Father, John 10 verse 30. Decades later, that one of the same men here, John, would see the glorified Christ yet once again in his old age. For the same purpose, for the purpose of encouragement. Just when he thought, I'm done, I'm over, I'm exiled in Patmos, and here is Christ showing up to John. And here's what he describes. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You see, a very similar picture here that John saw. The risen Christ, the Lord of his church, the one who walks in the middle of his church, who reigns supreme and determines what the church is to do and to be. Reading about the royal splendor of Jesus should renew our hope in faith and security in the midst of insecurity in a society that is going very fast towards the way of moral decay. See, even though followers of Christ experience darkness, the darkness of suffering and persecution, and are expected to carry the cross, which again invites humiliation and shame, the brightness of divine glory awaits us. That's the picture God wants us to see from this passage here, church. The glory of the divine presence awaits us. So no matter what you go through, persecution, pain, shame, sorrow, you just hang in there because there's glory coming. The problem is when we try to invert it. We always want glory now, but there's a cross to bear before we get there. So let me show you the second aspect of this vision of future glory. The first one was Jesus in royal splendor. I want you to see now, verses 3 through 4, Jesus in regal supremacy. He shows up with two other guys in the Mount of Transfiguration here. But here's an interesting detail that Luke shares in this vision here. 
In Luke 9, verse 31, he tells us that those two guys were talking to Jesus about the departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The departure, meaning the death of Christ, the crucifixion, what he just told the disciples. So when you read this account from the perspective of Luke, obviously divinely inspired, we know that those two guys, Moses and Elijah, famous Old Testament characters, were talking to Jesus Christ about the crucifixion. Church, you want to know why? Because they've been looking forward to that moment since their ministries. But because the Jews always associated Moses and Elijah with the law and the prophets, their presence in the transfiguration here confirms what Jesus had been saying all along. Specifically, he started saying this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And here's the, the proof of that. He has representatives of the law and the prophets with him in the Mount of Transfiguration talking with him. And he reigns supreme. He's above all of these guys. But I want you to see here Peter's perspective once again for those of you who are just like Peter. He demonstrates his impulsive personality once again. And I can see some of you doing the same thing and suggesting the same thing to Jesus Christ. He says, "Uh, Jesus, if you want, well, let me build a tabernacle as if Christ couldn't just build a tabernacle with his words. As if Christ, the, the glorified Christ, needed any help from a fisherman turned apostle. But the reason he's saying that, church, is because of the comfort he's experiencing Now, here's what he had in mind, possibly. If the transfiguration happened close to the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, that makes a lot of sense. He wanted to celebrate in style, in hoping for the inauguration of the Millennial Kingdom. Perhaps he said, well, maybe there's not going to be a crucifixion after all. Maybe this is it. This is the kingdom. This is the millennium. He just made the promise, so maybe he just spoke too soon about the whole cross business. And here we are. Let's celebrate in style. Jesus, I will build a tabernacle for you. Nevertheless, it seems like Peter placed Jesus on the same level with those two Old Testament characters because he said, I will build three tabernacles. In other words, these are equally great in divinity, so I'm going to build three tabernacles. He was wrong because Christ reigns supreme. And concerning the supremacy of Christ, the Bible is very clear about that. For example, the author of Hebrews points out that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That's in Hebrews 3, verse 3. He is worthy of more glory than Moses. Church, you know why? Because Moses experienced a similar event in Mount Sinai when he saw the glory of God and his face shone. But Jesus is worthy of more glory because he is the originator of the Shekinah glory of God. He is greater than Elijah because the famous prophet will one day serve as a witness in the end times. I refer you back to that study that we did in the book of Revelation a few years ago. An Elijah-like prophet will be raised up again, possibly the same one because, again, he did not experience death. Perhaps he himself will come back in the end times and finish his ministry. But Christ is superior to him. He's also superior to the patriarchs. According to John 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am, determining that I am greater than the patriarchs. He is greater than the kings of Israel, because in Matthew 12, verse 42, he says, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. But let me give you a summary of what Scripture says concerning the regal supremacy of Christ. He reigns supreme. He's above everybody else. And here's what the Bible says about that. John 3 verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. That's the supremacy of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25, Paul tells us he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Under his feet. Why? Because he is above all. 
Furthermore, in Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 22, we're told that the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus Christ is above every rule and authority, my friends. If you think you have a bad government now, you just chill because Jesus Christ is above all of that. He is above all rule and authority. In fact, he has determined who is going to serve as our president for the next four years and for the next four years and for the next and so on and so forth. It's all part of his sovereign plan. After seeing a magnificent picture of Christ, I want you to hear something now. And that a majestic pronouncement from God. We saw the majestic picture of Christ and now a majestic pronouncement from God. Verses 5 through 13. The Father shows up in the scene. By the usual manifestation of his presence, a cloud. You can go to Exodus 19, verse 16 to verify that, and also chapter 20, verse 21, to verify that God usually shows up in the picture of a cloud, in the manifestation of a cloud, and he interrupts Peter. The Bible is very clear about that. While Peter is still speaking, the father shows up and said, silence. And the reason he shows up is to affirm the identity of Christ and to issue a command. One that the apostle later recounted. See, Peter really understood this. That's why I love good old Peter. Because he has a, an impulsive personality. But God used this man. And it gives me encouragement. That if God can use such a man as Peter, he can use the rest of us. And here's what he wrote. 2 Peter 1 verses 17 through 18. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter recounts that experience again in 2 Peter. The disciples needed to listen to Jesus. And the word listen here means exactly to obey. It's the type of listening that we must do when we read the Bible. We're not just hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. And therefore, the Father says, you must listen. You must obey him. Why is he saying this, church? Because he just told the disciples, you are to bear your cross. If you want to follow me, you are to pick up your cross and follow me to the death. You are to deny yourself. Die to your own dreams. Die to your own desires. And follow me. And then the father shows up and said, you listen to him. You obey him. There's no way around the cross. There's no way around suffering and shame and humiliation in order to follow Christ. But here's a foretaste of glory divine. If you remain faithful, you will see the glory of God. Now, they were to obey Jesus also because the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah find fulfillment in him. Something that Jesus himself confirmed in John 5 verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Well, what are these scriptures that he was referring to? The Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written when he said those words. The author of Hebrews understood Jesus' role here of showing the Father. That, By the way, that's another reason we are to listen to Jesus. When the Father says, you listen to him, you obey him. Because when you listen to him, you are listening to me. When you obey him, you are following me. And the author of Hebrews understood that so clearly that he wrote under divine inspiration. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. God, long ago, after he spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways... In other words, he spoke through the written word. He spoke through prophetic utterances and the prophets in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In other words, 
You want to know what God wants for you? You want to know God's plan for your life? Listen to Jesus Christ. Listen to his word. The majestic pronouncement from God. Let me highlight two aspects of the voices that we hear in this scene here, and we'll close with that. Verse 5, I want you to see the affirmation from the Father. What the Father is doing is affirming the Son and demanding His disciples, the followers of Christ, to listen to Him. By the way, this is not the first time people hear a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father. You will remember in Matthew 3, verse 17, right after the baptism of Jesus. The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. From time to time, followers of Christ need that assurance that Jesus Christ is really who he claimed to be by divine proclamation. I mean, it's by reality or by divine truth. There's no question there, but we need to be reminded. The message is clear here that the Father is giving the disciples, the, the, at least those three guys, and then they would later tell the others, don't argue with Jesus. That's the point. If he tells you, pick up your cross and follow him, you listen to him. Don't argue with him. If he tells you to do something, you obey. If he says, pick up your cross and follow me, don't offer to build a tabernacle. Don't offer an alternative obedience to Jesus Christ. That doesn't work. And we do it all the time, church. Let me share with you at least four examples of things we do very often to provide an alternative to obedience to Christ. And let me say right from the beginning as a matter of disclaimer, I have done all of these. And if you're honest, when you hear them, you'll conclude that you have done too. You have said the same thing to God. You negotiate obedience with God. Here's the first. Jesus commands, forgive your offender. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 22. We're getting to that passage soon. There's no way around it. Forgive your offender. There's no excuse. But, but God, he did something unforgivable. No, there's no such thing. The only unforgivable sin is blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, and it cannot be committed against you. You forgive your offender, but we say, how about I cancel my offender, God? And how about I just pretend he doesn't exist? I'm not causing him any harm. On a spiritual level, if you're doing this, you're committing murder in the heart. That's what the Bible says. There is no alternative to reconciliation and forgiveness. No matter what your offender has done to you. Number two, Jesus prescribes, don't follow your own philosophy concerning conflict resolution. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5 verse 43, and we negotiate with God. We say, well, wait a minute. How about I do this, Lord? I'd rather follow Freud or Dr. Phil. They went to college, and Jesus, you're a carpenter, you know? How about this, God, we say? I will apply a progressive agenda that I learned in my Ivy League school. How about that? You're going to be impressed, God. He's not impressed. Anything other than full obedience doesn't count. How about this one, number three? Jesus orders, make disciples of every nation by sharing the gospel with them. That's Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, and Acts 1, verse 8. Make disciples of every nation, which means if you are a believer in Christ, my friend, evangelism is not an option. You must do it. But we say this, Lord, I think I have a better plan. You, you got to get with the times here, God. It's not politically correct to speak about Jesus anymore. I can get in trouble for that. So have a, I have a better plan. I will wait for unbelievers to come to me and ask about my faith. How about that? Wrong answer. There is no alternative to full and complete obedience. If Jesus says, I want you to go out, even if it costs your life, we do it. Number four, Jesus demands, enter through the narrow gate. Matthew 7, verse 13, but we say, Jesus, come on, look at the white gate. 
Everybody is going there. Oprah is going there. No. Wrong answer. Parents, you don't allow your children to negotiate obedience with you. Don't do the same with God the Father. I know the reason why we try to negotiate obedience with God. And the only reason I know that is because I do it all the time. And I'm confronted with the truth of the Word of God in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. You want to hear the answer? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So every time you hear well-meaning people tell you, follow your heart, tell them, no, that's dangerous. That's the most dangerous thing you can do is to follow your heart because the heart is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? The Father is well-pleased in Jesus. There's an affirmation from Him. I want you to see here the assurance from the Son, verses 6 through 13. The three disciples realized they were in the presence of God. His holiness contrasted with their sinfulness, and they fainted in terror, a common scene in the Bible. Isaiah and Ezekiel had a similar experience. John had a similar experience later in the island of Patmos. When confronted with the holiness of God, the only alternative is to faint in horror, to realize I am a sinful man and I am in the presence of a holy God. But Jesus comforted them by veiling his humanity back up and sent Moses and Elijah back to heaven. But Mark provides an interesting detail on this scene here yet again, on the conversation on the way back from the mountain, because that's, that's what I want to know. I'm reading about this. I'm thinking, man, what are these guys talking about when they're coming back from the mountain? Mark tells us, Mark 9, verses 9 through 10, as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. So church, they did not understand the Messiahship of Jesus Christ at this point. They did not understand God's redemptive plan that he needs to rise from the dead. What is this about rising from the dead? So they were a little confused about the chronology of redemption. And they wondered why Jesus would not establish his kingdom immediately since they already saw Elijah. See, they knew the whole business about Elijah coming and preparing the way for the Lord. Now, the scribes had many things wrong, but they got one thing right. And they taught correctly that Elijah must come and prepare the way for the Lord. That's the only reason they got that right is because that's in the Bible. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And then Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The disciples knew that, and they were saying, wait a minute. We just saw Elijah. What is this whole thing about resurrection here? I thought you were going to establish the kingdom now because Elijah is right there. Well, he was in a mountain. But the Elijah that they just saw did not prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is the Elijah-like prophet that would prepare the way of the Lord. The reason we know that is because the text says that. They finally understood that John the Baptist fulfilled that role. Now, John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated. There is no such thing. He is in the line of Elijah, prophetically speaking, and he came to prepare the way of the Lord. Hopefully, when they understood this, the Bible says that they finally got it. They started to piece together the sequence of events leading up to the cross and after that. Because they needed to know that. Otherwise, Peter could never have preached the sermon he preached in Acts 2 about the redemptive program of God. And in verse 12, Jesus affirms one more time in plain terms, I am going to suffer at the hands of the Jews. And he affirms and assures the disciples as his redemptive plan is right on schedule. Nothing escapes his control. Nothing is out of control. 
Even though he's going to suffer at the hands of the Jews and be crucified, he's going to raise again, and he's going to build a church, his church. He promised that in a previous scene. So church, what does that mean for us? God's redemptive plan remains on schedule, no matter what happens. Well, cancer got in the way for you? Guess what? God's redemptive plan is still on schedule. Government overreach got in the way? God's redemptive plan is still on schedule. Skyrocketing crime rates? God's redemptive plan is still on schedule. Rising inflation? No problem. God's redemptive plan is still on schedule. Rumors of wars? God's redemptive plan is still on schedule. Nothing will ever derail His sovereignty. He remains on His throne. The darkness of our time can never overpower the Shekinah glory of God. And you've heard me say this, and it's worth saying it again. The darker our community, our society gets, the greater the opportunity we have to shine the light of the gospel brighter. But Scripture just showed you today a foretaste of glory divine. My fellow believer, one day you will walk and talk with Jesus, just like Moses and Elijah did, looking Him in the face in the Shekinah glory of God will not burn your retinas because you will have a glorified pair of eyes. And that's only because He died on a cross to rescue you from hell. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.